This is a tremendous illustration of trust and meekness. Jesus refused to use his personal power to make food for himself. Instead, he trusted in the purpose and timing of God. He trusted that God would withhold no good thing from him, and so he endured the whole test and then received the reward of faith. In other words, this is Jesus doing the precise opposite of what Adam and Eve did. This is Jesus rewriting the human story on our behalf. This is a human being, a true human being, finally trusting God and receiving from God that which God can be trusted to provide. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The gospel tells the story of how Jesus does for us what we were never able to do for ourselves, and he pays for what we have done in his body on the cross. We often focus on the last half of that reality, Jesus paying for the things we have done in his body on the cross, but we sometimes fail to adequately reflect upon the first part, how in his life and in his perfect obedience, he does for us the things that we were never able to do for ourselves. That's part of the gospel too. And here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 3, we were introduced to John the Baptist. He was the forerunner prophesied in the Old Testament. His job was to prepare and position the people to properly respond to the person and work of Christ. At the conclusion of chapter 3, we saw Jesus himself being baptized by John, not because he was a sinner, he was not, but rather because he wanted to endorse the message of John and he wanted to identify with the faithful remnant of Israel. He was also likely, in some sense, consecrating himself wholly to the purpose and service of the Lord. When he rose from the water, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's an interesting sequence of events, and that's a very interesting sequence of words. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit led Jesus directly into a temptation of the devil? Does the Holy Spirit tempt us? That's a very common question, the answer to which would have to be no. James, the brother of the Lord, says in James 1, 13 to 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Closed quote. So God does not tempt us. And yet it is equally clear from reading the Bible that God does test us. We think of Abraham. We think of Job. And we think of this verse in Matthew's gospel. God clearly orchestrates tests the purpose of which is either to refine or display our faith, or in some cases to do both simultaneously. The devil, of course, has other desires. He attempts to stimulate our pride and our lusts and our hopes so as to lure us 
away from God and into sin. Thus, a testing situation from God may be the occasion of a temptation from inside of us, stimulated and exploited by the devil, but in no sense from God. That's a fine distinction, but a very necessary one. The Spirit led Jesus into a trying situation so as to display his perfect faith in God and so as to perfectly recapitulate the history and story of God's people Israel. Those were God's purposes, and they were good. The devil, of course, had other purposes, as he always does. Let's keep reading the story. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, why did Jesus spend 40 days in the desert? We've already hinted at this. Jesus is recapitulating the history of Israel. Jesus is the new Adam. The first Adam disobeyed God in a garden. So what does Jesus do? He obeys God in a desert. Jesus is the new Israel. Israel grumbled against God in the desert for 40 years. So what does Jesus do? He trusts God perfectly in the desert for an analogous period of time. Jesus is doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thanks be to God. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's just notice here that the temptations of the devil are often very subtle. It takes a couple of readings just to figure out what the sin would have been if Jesus had actually done what the devil suggested. It is not a sin for Messiah to make bread, right? He'll do that very thing later, miraculously, to meet the needs of the crowd and to testify to his own identity. So what is the sin? R.T. France says helpfully here, the act was thus not in itself wrong. But Jesus recognized in his hunger an experience designed by God to teach him the lesson of Deuteronomy 8, 3, close quote. So the devil was tempting Jesus to do something in and of itself value neutral, such that he would forego an experience that God had designed for his personal and ministerial benefit. Again, that is a very subtle temptation. You would have to have had your wits about you just to spot it. And you would have to have known your Bible really well in order to defeat it. That's one of the main takeaways of the passage. Jesus is aware that he is in some sense repeating the desert story of Israel. And so he appears to have had those scriptures very much front of mind. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. Keep that reference front of your mind as we continue reading the story. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice here that the devil can quote Scripture. He is quoting, of course, from Psalm 91, a psalm that was originally about King David, but that is rightly applied to David's greater son, Jesus. So the devil is working a psalm and working it well, as far as it goes. 
The devil often knows his Bible better than God's people. That's a problem. But thankfully, he doesn't know his Bible better than Jesus. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, another verse from the desert experience of Israel. Look now at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This citation also comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, this time from verse 13. Now, just for fun, look up all of those verses cited by Jesus in your actual paper Bible. This won't work on a phone Bible. I'm not convinced that phone Bibles are actual Bibles anyway, but that's a story for another day. Look those three verses up in an actual Bible. In my Bible, you can read all of those citations at a single glance. When I open my Bible to page 182 and leave it open, all three of those citations lie directly before my face. So what point am I trying to make? Or better yet, what point is the Holy Spirit trying to make? I wonder if he isn't saying that if we could just learn one page of the Bible, we would be able to stand against the devil and defeat his pathetic schemes. That's how powerful this book is. One page will make the devil flee. Thanks be to God. Verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is a tremendous illustration of trust and meekness. Jesus refused to use his personal power to make food for himself. Instead, he trusted in the purpose and timing of God. He trusted that God would withhold no good thing from him. And so he endured the whole test and then received the reward of faith. In other words, this is Jesus doing the precise opposite of what Adam and Eve did. This is Jesus rewriting the human story on our behalf. This is a human being, a true human being, finally trusting God and receiving from God that which God can be trusted to provide. Hallelujah. Hey, Pastor Paul, let me jump in here if I can, because while I know that the big picture theological purpose of this passage is to show us how Jesus recapitulates the story of Israel, doing right all the things that they did wrong, but at the same time, a passage like this can also provide some practical guidance as well for Christians living in the present in terms of how to resist the temptations that we might face in our day-to-day. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Evangelicals are sometimes guilty of being too pragmatic and moralistic in their Bible readings. We always want to know how this will make me a better parent or a better friend or a nicer neighbor. And all of that is great. But we often pursue those readings at the expense of their primary purpose in the scriptures. As you say, the primary reason Matthew is telling the story is not to help us avoid temptation. But rather, it is to show us that Jesus is the new and better Israel. He is the obedient Son of God. Whereas 
Israel was the disobedient son of God. Israel grumbled in the desert. Jesus was quiet, content, and trusting. Israel rebelled in the desert. Jesus trusted God perfectly and implicitly in the desert. And that's why you have the whole 40 days thing, right? The 40 days supposed to remind us of 40 years. Is that Jesus being really intentional here? Yeah, 100%. But to return to your original question, just because a text has a primary meaning doesn't mean that the text can't be mined a second time, as it were, for moral instruction. That is entirely appropriate as well. In fact, the Apostle Paul encouraged his people to read the whole Bible looking for moral instruction. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, talking about the same desert-wandering story that lies behind our story in Matthew 4. He said, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. 1 Corinthians 10, 6-13. So there was a theological purpose for that story, and it's also perfectly okay to mine it again for guidance in terms of how to avoid temptation. Exactly right. As long as you aren't skipping the one to do the other, mm-hmm. you're totally in bounds here, right? Get the theological purpose. See Jesus as the new Israel. See him as the obedient son. See him establishing his sinless perfection so that he's qualified to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then see him as the perfect example, showing God's people how to resist temptation. All right, so there's a lot going on in this passage. Yes. Okay, so back to my original question then, which now I feel much better about, by the way. (laughs) What can this passage teach regular Christians about how to resist temptation? Well, I, I think the first thing it is saying, and by far the most obvious thing that it's saying, is that you need to be well-versed in the teachings of Scripture. Jesus used the Bible like a baseball bat. Every (laughs) temptation that the devil threw at him, Jesus swatted it out of the park with an appropriate verse. And all from one page in the Bible. I never knew that before. (laughs) Well, it actually depends on how big the font is in your Bible, (laughs) to be be honest. I I have one Bible in which all of those citations are on the same page, but in most of my Bibles, they're actually on two pages. Okay, well, fair enough, but it's still pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. And it's a reminder to us that we need to know the Bible and we need to memorize the Bible. As soon as you start reasoning with the devil, you are in trouble, my friend. You need a verse so that you can shut the conversation down Mm. fast. Yeah, I like that. You don't want to be reasoning with the devil. That's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. According to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So that's our weapon. And you need to have it always in your heart and in your hand. And then the second thing I would say on a practical level is that the story implies that we are at our weakest and our most vulnerable when we're hungry, tired, and alone. There's a reason this story takes place in the desert when Jesus is alone and has been fasting for a very long time. The devil knows when we're at our most vulnerable, and so should we. 
If you're staying up late and not getting enough sleep and you're spending too much time alone, then you are weaker than God intends you to be. You need to monitor your physical health to maximize your spiritual strength. You don't want to face the devil at a disadvantage. And then the third thing I might point out is that temptation in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Remember, it was the Spirit that led Jesus out into the wilderness. God ordains certain challenges to serve as tests and trials because it is in these tests and trials that faith and character are developed and matured. But God doesn't tempt us to sin though, right? Right. He ordains the testing circumstance, but he's actually providing strength and grace to us in that circumstance so that we overcome the challenge and grow. So he's not tempting us to sin. He's actually resourcing us to succeed. The devil is trying to tempt us to sin, but God is providing everything we need to succeed in the context of that challenge, even in terms of providing the escape hatch that the Apostle Paul talked about back in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So he gives us strength to fight and he gives us windows to jump out of if required. But his goal for us in all of these situations that he ordains is actually growth, perseverance, and sanctification. So he's not tempting us to sin. He is empowering us to succeed. But as in this story, he does ordain the trial and the testing circumstance. All right, that's a very helpful clarification. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. There, Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 9, 1-2. Matthew's point seems to be, that the light of God often shines in unusual places. Galilee was a backwater. It was socially and politically irrelevant. It was too close to the Gentiles and too far from the temple. It was rural. It was country. It was unsophisticated. It was, in other words, the last place on earth from which you would start a revival. But God's ways are higher than our ways. And he often chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Notice also that Jesus knows very well what he is doing. He made his base in Galilee so that what was spoken of by the prophet might come to pass. Jesus consciously understood himself to be fulfilling prophecy. He did things a certain way on purpose in order to fulfill prophecy. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what story he was writing. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that Jesus' message carries on precisely where John's left off. John is a hinge between the Old Testament and the New. John has one hand on the Old Testament promises and one hand on the New Testament fulfillments. And Jesus knows that very well. Like John, he knows that to take hold of the kingdom, you have to let go of everything else. And like John, he knows that if the king is here, 
then the kingdom is very near indeed, even at the door. Verse 18, while walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now notice that Jesus calls them. Rabbis did not normally recruit students. Students normally applied to them. But Jesus always takes the initiative. Notice also what Jesus says to these unlikely recruits. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Those words are drawn from Jeremiah 16, 16. And they refer to the work of God in gathering in the scattered exiles from among the nations. That is what the disciples of Jesus will do. They will take the message of Jesus to the nations and gather in the elect people of God. Hallelujah. Verse 20. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Notice the immediacy and totality of their response. They left everything and followed him. Verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. The message is pretty clear. Following Jesus may cost you your job, your home, and your family. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then it is worth it. Though it cost you your life, it is worth it. Follow him. Verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. There's a lot packed into that little paragraph, and we're rapidly running out of time, so let's just quickly make a few observations. Let's notice, first of all, just how busy Jesus was. Galilee, as a region, was about 120 kilometers by 70 kilometers, and had 204 villages in it, and just under 3 million people in Jesus' day. At a rate of two to three villages a day, it would take about three months to visit them all, assuming that Jesus traveled and taught seven days a week, which it seems that he did. That's a lot of walking, and that's a lot of talking. Jesus was a hard worker, and so should we be. Secondly, let's notice that Jesus taught, preached, and ministered to physical needs. That also should be a pattern that we strive to imitate as his people today. Thirdly, let's notice the diversity of Jesus' following. The text says that people from Syria to the north and Greek-speaking people from the Decapolis were among his eager hearers. This, of course, anticipates the later and more comprehensive ingathering of the Gentiles. Fourthly, let's notice that Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. D.A. Carson defines this as the good news concerning God and the inbreaking of his saving reign in the person of his son, the Messiah. William Hendrickson says that the term describes a message having to do with God's kingship, rule, or sovereignty 
recognized in the hearts and operative in the lives of his people and affecting their complete salvation, their constitution as a church, and finally, a redeemed universe, closed quote. And then lastly, let's notice that the many healings and exorcisms remind us that all such things are foreign to the kingdom of heaven. In the presence of the king, sickness, disease, and death are forever banished. Thanks be to God. Amen. Wow. I've never really thought about how busy Jesus was, but as you lay it out there at the end of the episode, that does sound like a pretty packed schedule. Yeah, and and at the same time, as we'll see as we make our way forward, Jesus would also make sure to find times to pull away into a desert place in order to pray. So he was mindful of the need for seasons of intense communion in order to prepare for these seasons of intense ministry that we're reading about here in Matthew 4. Mm, Yes, well, there definitely is some wisdom in that. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.